Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. John Farrow and Tom Keen in New York, uh, looking at global economics and, yes, the politics involved as well. And that means in Japan, an important election over the weekend. The short answer is Abe wins again. Joining us now, Robert Feldman of Morgan Stanley, MUFG, their senior advisor in Tokyo. Uh, he is uh, definitive on Japan and their political economics. Robbie, thank you so much for joining us again from uh, Tokyo. What was the character of this victory for Mr. Abe? The victory was a little bit stronger than I had expected. He has now, uh, again, uh, got a very strong majority in the upper house. Uh, at the moment, he does not have the two-thirds he would need to amend the Constitution. There's been a little bit of talk about one of the center-left parties may be coming along. Uh, but he has all the votes he needs uh, to get major economic legislation through if he chooses to do so. And that is the issue that I think markets are going to start grappling uh, over the next mm. month as they see him uh, redo his cabinet, see who he appoints, see what the policy priorities are. That is the issue I think is before investors now. Who votes for Mr. Abe? I mean, does he have the support of Iowa? Is it the support of New York City? What is the character mm -hmm. of his supporters? Well, his supporters are uh, broadly small business, um, uh, 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 the um, uh, general public, uh, the sort of uh, center right, and a little bit of those who are uh, focused on, say, agriculture uh, or other uh, industry interests. But I think another very important new support for Abe has come from young people, because uh, Prime Minister Abe is the one who uh, pushed and achieved uh, the lowering of the voting age to 18. Moreover, if you look at the voting results on uh, some, call it litmus issues between, call it left and right, uh, such as constitutional reform. What you see is that it's a much larger share of older uh, people who are on the left wing and a much smaller share of young people who are on the left wing, although obviously there are some. So I think that's also an important characteristic to look at. Robbie, we're going back, I don't know, six years to Shinzo Abe, the prime minister, mm -hmm. talking about sales tax hikes. Are we finally going to mm -hmm. get this sales tax hike one and two? Mm -hmm. What do you expect the fallout to be? Uh, well, the answer on that is almost certainly yes, because he said uh, as part of the election that, yes, he would uh, hike the tax, as has been already legislated. Uh, and so he doesn't, if he does nothing, and that would be hard to redo at this point, then the tax will go up on uh, October 1st. Uh, the negative impact of the tax, I think, will be significant, but not nearly as bad as it was in 2014. At that time, they not only hiked three percentage points, but they also made a revision to the Social Security system uh, to take back some of the over-indexing uh, that had allowed uh, nominal pension levels to stay where they were despite deflation in the economy. So all that took about three percentage points out of, the, out of GDP. Wow. This time, they're only doing two percentage points on the consumption tax, and they've already passed uh, some uh, measures uh, to ease the burden, partly in some spending areas that are really necessary, like better education, things like that. So the negative impact will probably be smaller uh, than it was last time, uh, but not, um, not tiny. So, Robbie, that's domestic policy. That's the tax hike. Let's talk about what I don't think has got much discussion here in the United States, the trade mm -hmm. dispute between Japan and South Korea. Just frame that mm -hmm. for our listeners, Robbie. What is going on mm -hmm. between Japan and South Korea right now? 
Well, there are a couple things that are going on. Uh, one is that uh, a few months ago, the uh, South Korean Supreme Court uh, made some rulings uh, that were inconsistent with Japan's interpretation of the treaty, and so there's been a lot of back and forth on that. In addition, most recently, uh, I think it was uh, July 1st, uh, Japan decided to, uh, to take uh, South Korea off uh, the so-called white list for the export of certain dual-use items. These are items that can be used uh, in the manufacture uh, of nuclear weapons. Um, uh, now, also, we've seen from Korea a couple of uh, statements uh, from Diet members uh, that uh, some of these materials over the last four years actually have been diverted uh, to or sold in non-approved ways. So from the Japanese point of view, this is an issue of national security of great uh, worry. To the South Koreans, uh, they don't believe this. Uh, or in yeah. general, they don't believe it. They think it's much more oriented toward, uh, call it uh, tit-for-tat retaliation. It might be political, et cetera. But I think there are two issues here. One is that uh, those of us, you know, regular working stiffs like us, don't understand the uh, chemistry of what's going on, uh, the difference between an extraordinarily uh, good uh, quality of this sort of material and a pretty good quality apparently is like night and day. So that's one issue. And then there's uh, probably some information that most of us don't have, like what happened to those exports that kind of got out of hand. Mm -hmm. Why did it happen? Are the um, uh, matters or the methods that these companies have to control exports, are they actually sufficient? Uh, moreover, when you think about those things, there is a huge incentive among the security committee not to let information go public, because if they do, then uh, some of yeah. the sources might be, um, might be uh, compromised. So it's very difficult for investors to really know what's going on here. Dr. Feldman, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Honored with Morgan Stanley, MUFG, uh, in uh, at Tokyo. We are thrilled to bring you now Peter Hooper, who is with Deutsche Bank, their global head of economic research, really to set the tone here. Dr. Hooper, thank you so much for being with us. I love your headline off your note, will the first cut be the deepest? And this goes to almost the inertial impact of a rate cut cycle. Is it biggest at early on or is it bigger as you add on rate cuts forward? Uh, good morning, Tom. Um, you know, the, the, certainly the, the debate has been um, uh, uh, whether whether to go big up front uh, <clears throat> 50 and done or, uh, or, or uh, make it a little smaller and, and uh, have, have some cuts over time. We, we are still expecting several cuts this year. We think we'll get a total of 75 basis points. That, that does assume that things get a bit worse on the trade front and uncertainties continue yeah. there. But uh, it, it certainly is not, is, it is not a picture that says you need to be aggressive up front. We, we don't agree with that one. Uh, I mean, the economy... Right is okay um, uh, there, there are a number of reasons why we expect the, the committee to want to, to cut rates um, um, but but uh, I mean the case against 50 I mean not cutting deep is, right uh, the, commi right. the committees you know committees mixed on this uh, co economy generally okay uh, uh, we're, we're not too far from neutral and yeah. cutting a lot could overshoot uh, uh, there, there are a number of other factors in there we can talk about. But. Well, one of the factors to me is the reaction functions since we're at the lower bound. I mean, I know everybody wanders back to 95 and, you know, everybody's got their analog they like to look at. But those analogs aren't with negative interest rates. Those analogs 
aren't with near 0% rates and certainly zero real yield rates as well. Does, does your, mm-hmm. do your dynamics work here like they've worked before? Well, yeah, we are close to the zero bound. We're, we're I guess, nine twenty-five basis point cuts above it. Um, and w- w- one could argue, yes, you definitely want to go aggressively, given how close we are to zero, if there's a serious risk for the economy. We're not in that situation. We're not at a serious risk. We're not at the point that would warrant uh, doing doing a lot extra upfront right now. Uh, I think, I think I, the, the basic reasons for cutting rates now. Are, yes, we have some we have some risks on the global front. Yes, we have uh, some uncertainty on on trade that's going to going to continue to to fester, uh, most likely. Uh, and we have an inflation picture that's a little on the weak side. And I think the Fed wouldn't mind seeing inflation move a bit above two percent. So so the risk uh, uh, to to going further uh, uh, below neutral, if you will, are, yeah. are, not, are not high. But uh, it's not a case of, hey, uh, we're, we're on the cusp of a, of a downturn here. Uh, we need to act aggressively. That just isn't the picture right now. Peter, a lot of pressure from the president this morning uh, through Twitter on the Federal Reserve needing to act. Does that complicate things just optically month end? You know, you know it, it does, I think. Um, the Fed, I mean, left to its own devices, uh, if, if, if we didn't have uh, the, the mixed economic picture and, and everything else, I mean, the Fed, the Fed is going to move policy based on where it sees the economy. Um, if the economy were not in the picture, uh, pressure from the administration of anything, I think, is counterproductive. The Fed does not like the impression that... Uh, yeah seems to be growing that uh, monetary policy is being run out of the White House. Uh, this, this is counterproductive, I think. Uh, and it, it well, is one factor that, to my mind, argues against 50. You don't want to act aggressively because right. that says, okay, the Fed's jumping when the White yeah. House says jump. And that, 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 that's bad for perceptions about right. independence. Peter, one final question. The idea of how business will react to the first, the second, the third rate cut. I mean, do they act, or, or are we at a point where they don't change investment plans off a more accommodative policy? Well, I guess, you know, at, at, at this point, a 25 basis point cut is doing at least something to, to, to bolster financial conditions. Um, uh, yes, uh, if, if you wanted to really give financial conditions a boost near term, you, you might want to argue doing more than more than the market expects. But um, I think we're, we're a bit below neutral. I think every bit, every little bit uh, helps in terms of some supporting financial get financial conditions. Um, but uh, the, the bigger the bigger issue is what's what's going to be happening to trade policy yeah. before. That is the main drag. That is the main factor holding back business okay. right now. We've got to leave it there. Peter Hooper, thank you so much for the briefing, head of all of economic research uh, at uh, Deutsche Bank this morning. And with us now, Brooke Sutherland, joining us on the industrial space, as they call it. 
This will be a two-hour conversation uh, right now, two-hour conversation on industry. It's oh the rage right now. All sorts of smart people are in the value, in the, the trade manufacturing gloom, gloominess of industrial. Who's going to win this battle? The earnings are terrible crew or those that are buying deep discount value? I don't really know where the deep discount value is at this point. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting to me is just how much some of these industrial stocks are up going into earnings season. And I think that's why you saw really big disappointments at the likes of CSX. I mean, that stock was up 30% going into earnings. And then when you have them come out and drastically cut their revenue. What about Honeywell? I mean, Honeywell, the gloom there, you wrote about the gloom. I'm looking at as you beautifully state, as you always do, Brooke, they lifted organic revenue sales vision. That's not gloomy, is it? So the thing about that, so they did raise their organic revenue guidance for the full year, but the second quarter actually came in way weaker than analysts Yeah, but I'm not buying it for guidance, 90 days. I'm buying it for one year, two year, five years, 20 years. So the thing that it's gives me- It's called a long-term investor. <laughs> I, I understand. The thing that gives me pause about Honeywell is people typically think that they are just being conservative and there's upside yeah. to their guidance and they have the opportunity to raise down the road. And this to me does not feel like they're trying to set the bar low so that they can beat it. It feels like they have <clears> legit legitimate reason to be concerned, to be cautious okay. here. 60% of Honeywell's business is shorter cycle, so they don't really have that yeah, much okay, visibility well, into how okay. well it's going to turn um, going forward. You sound like a sell-side analyst. What is this? You know? <laughs> I'm just trying to be you know, properly you skeptical, to, You wanted cautious. to buy, hold, sell on Honeywell this morning, <laughs> get us all in trouble? So, so anyways, Honeywell's like at 20 times earnings, whatever. I'm not even going to mention the name of the company. It's a vanilla um, uh, it's a vanilla industrial company. Good morning, Cleveland, Ohio. And they're trading it like 14 times earnings. Are people comfortable owning this stuff just because it's cheap? I mean, I think it depends on the name. I think aerospace is still a really safe place right now. I think you saw that with Honeywell, 11% organic sales growth in their aerospace business. I think we're going to get numbers tomorrow from United Technologies that are going to reflect similar growth there in their aerospace business. And I think that gives people confidence um, in that sector continuing to be robust for the time being. But you look elsewhere particularly at some of the shorter cycle markets, you just see, you know, groundswells of, of weakness there. And I think that yeah. should make you nervous and make you feel like maybe some of these stocks are not quite cheap enough, especially if I think about 3M, uh, which is also reporting later this week. And I think, you know, expectations there are that we could see yet another guidance cut, which would bring us by my count, I think, to five in the past year, which well, would be... Uh, you know, a rough start for that new management team. I, I, I mean, I look at 3M as a separate beast in itself. What a difference in relative performance versus other industries. It's really rolled over there from 2018 early as well. Let's go back to the railroads. I, you know, the transports. I've had more Dow Theory conversations, I think, in the last 10 years. I've had in the last week and a half. CSX is an example. The airlines, I guess, this bundled, ugly thing called transports. Is it the transports of, of, of my mother and your grandmother? No, I, I mean, I think it's interesting. I think you're right. You think of this as a very sort of old school industry, but it can be a leading yeah. indicator for, for where we're going. Um, just, you know, in terms of measuring 
demand. And uh, Bloomberg News' Cameron Kreese actually did a really interesting chart okay. last week where he uh, he <clears throat> compared the transport index to FedEx. And so FedEx has obviously yeah. had its share of How'd idiosyncratic issues, and <sighs> uh, but it's also exposed to international <clears throat> markets. Yeah. So it can be sort of a proxy for the trade war versus railroads, you know, just by nature of their business are more domestically focused. So if you start to see the railroad sell off, that could be an indicator that, you know what, the domestic economy is starting right. to lose steam, that maybe we're starting to see this weakness spread into America. So it's sort of an interesting proxy for that. What's the correlation of railroad prices right now to trade war Trump you know the whole thing not very much because they're yeah. so domestically focused I mean to the extent that the automakers are struggling because of the trade tension you know a cars, huge yeah. yes a huge part of the railroads business is moving the cars mm -hmm. and so that's been weak for them um, you know lately they've struggled a lot on the intermodal front and intermodal is sort of your typical consumer goods that can be transported via either truck or rail yeah. so part of that's the trade war but the other part is that the trucking market is weak right now the prices are down there's a lot of capacity there and so yeah. they're starting to see See some of the pain points there, but you know they, they sort of lasted a lot longer than names like FedEx um, in terms of volume staying up. But the other yeah. saving grace for them is they've all been under these crazy efficiency cost-cutting plans, so their margins are going up, even though volumes are coming down. So, what's your focus into this, this earnings season? I mean, which company is sort of the Brooks Sutherland one I've really got to you know dive through? Well, GE always, but they're sort is of their own still an animal. industrial company? Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, at this point, they've gotten rid of all the consumer-facing businesses, really wound down the finance arm. Um, you know, I don't know if that so much is a is a key, you know, indicator of where the markets are going. But wow. I will say that company, more than anything, is very vulnerable to swings in interest rates, just given the size of their unfunded pension yeah. liability and then their long-term care insurance balance. Um, yeah. Those are very sensitive yeah. to steps down in interest rates. And now we got one more question for Brooke Southern, of course, we have to do this, which is, she is our surveillance movie queen. I mean, Scarlet Foo is our celebrity lodestone. Brooke could never touch Scarlet Foo's encyclopedic knowledge of Hollywood, but you can go right there on movies anytime. You were you were one of the $183 million in Lion King this weekend. I was. I Report. went with my sister. You know, I have to say, it sort of lacks something for me. I don't know if it really added value to do the CGI lions. I just, maybe I'm too old school. I liked the old cartoon version. You can see more emotion with the cartoon animals than you can realistic looking lions, if that makes sense. But they did have AC at the movie theater. Was so that Scar was a good was selling Scar point. Yeah, that was a good <laughs> selling point. Was Scar suitably scary? No, it was much more faded. It was, I mean, it took me a while before I even found the scar on his face. It, yeah. It was, it was a more muted But was he appearance. a more modern, sensitive scar now versus no. the, the classic cartoon? No, it was still just as, um, there was a lot of violence, a lot of yeah. regicide, and um, I don't know what the word is for uncle side, but that, that is <laughs> well. Uncle side. Uncle You're side killing it right now. You're just words. killing it. The, so the basic idea is anyone uh, with, a, with a dog at home who's <laughs> lifting them up this weekend doing the Simba routine, I mean, you know the torture of dogs? Vet Bill hated it all weekend. <laughs> we're doing a Simba routine with Vet Bill all weekend. Really? Oh, no. Oh, yeah, you know. But well, is this like three-star, four-star, five-star? I would give it you give like it solid brooks? three and a half. Like, it was three a good half, experience. Yeah. It was fun. The air Take me back to my childhood. Good. The air conditioning was good. The popcorn <laughs> was good. Yeah, what a, wait a minute. What the popcorn cost? It was a lot. Yeah, it was a you. lot. And it also comes in this like industrial size 
that basically yeah. like I, you could feed a family of six on that for the <laughs> night. Brooke Sutherland, thank you so much on Industrial <coughs> America with lots coming up um, as well. This is a wonderful uh, moment for me. Jonathan Portis is at King's College. And I can tell you that in all my conversations in the United Kingdom on the oddity of the constitutional ballet of a disunited kingdom, he has been hugely valuable. Professor Portis joins us now from King's College. Your mathematics at Oxford maybe prepared you for this moment, Professor. What is the math? What is Boris Johnson's mathematics when he becomes Prime Minister Johnson? What is his calculus? Um, so the big question is that Johnson could really go one of two ways. Um, the first is to uh, uh, is to say uh, that. Um, a no-deal Brexit would be bad for the UK economy and perhaps more importantly from his point of view, bad for him politically, um, and that therefore he needs a deal with the EU. Um, and that essentially means the deal that is already on the table, the deal that Theresa May has negotiated, possibly rebadged, um, I think, what uh, – uh, uh, in American politics is uh, referred to as putting lipstick on the pig. Uh, um, very American phrase. Uh, yeah. and, then, uh, 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 and then trying to uh, sell that to the UK Parliament and then to the, uh, to the British people. Yeah. Uh, so he could go that way. Um, the alternative is to, for him to say, as he has done in the campaign, that Theresa May's deal is dead um, and that if the EU want a deal, they're going to have to throw it out and start again. Yeah. The EU have said that's not going to happen. Um, if he goes down that route, and, and that seems to me the most likely one, uh, then uh, the most likely outcome is that uh, we are headed for no deal, right. but that the UK Parliament will stop him from going to no deal and that we will have to have an election to sort it out. Uh, so that obviously is a very high-risk gamble for Mr. Johnson to take, but it is really the logical consequence of right, what he said right. so far. Now, Mr. Johnson is no stranger to, um, to changing his mind when he decides it, it suits him. Uh, um, I don't think anyone would describe him as the most principled politician in, uh, in UK politics. So he's quite capable of doing a U-turn. But at the moment, the logic points to us heading for no deal um, and uh, us having a general election relatively soon within the next six months uh, to uh, to decide whether or not that's the route we want to go. So Jonathan, is there any sense yet, it's been you know several years now, of what a hard Brexit really would look like for the UK? Um, well, I think we have a much better idea now than, than uh, we did about what a hard Brexit would look like. And we know that some of the worst potential impacts of a hard break of a no deal Brexit will not materialize. So um, in technical terms, if nothing at all had been done, then planes would stop flying between the UK and continental Europe, for example. That's not going to happen. Uh, there are some legal fixes that the EU has put in place unilaterally to ensure that uh, planes will keep on flying, uh, uh, trucks will keep on rolling, um, and uh, on the UK side, we've made contingency plans so we can avoid things like shortages of medicines and so on. So I don't think the idea 
that as was technically possible uh, um, at one point that they, that what the, the UK would literally be cut off from the continent and that there would be a quick descent into chaos with widespread shortages. I don't think that is very likely. But there will be significant economic disruption because the one thing no deal Brexit clearly does mean legally is new tariffs, trade barriers and customs controls between the UK and continental Europe. Um, and given the degree to which multinational companies have uh, um, Europeanized their supply chains over the last 40 years, relying on the complete absence of any such borders or controls, that is going to be pretty disruptive. So you'd expect to see uh, rises in prices, probably a fall in the pound, um, possibly some localized disruption and shortages of some things, although I don't think it will be as bad as some people claim it is. But it, it will not be, it, it will be bumpy, it will be disruptive. So Jonathan, I know in your list of potential outcomes here, uh, you did not mention my favorite, which is the second referendum. Is that, is there no momentum behind a second referendum? Um, I, I think um, that, that a second referendum is a certainly a possibility, but we're not uh, we're not we're not there yet. Um, it is possible. Uh, I think uh, I do not think that there is. Some, some people have suggested that Boris Johnson would indeed do a complete uh, cynical U-turn and decide that the best way out of this bind in which he'll find himself in is a second referendum. I think that's unlikely. I think it would. Uh, be politically yeah. suicidal for him. Um, but one possible outcome of the election that I've suggested is, is likely. If there is an election, it will be between uh, parties on the one side, the Conservative Party led yeah. by Boris Johnson and the Brexit Party led by Nigel Farage, who want a quick no-deal Brexit, and parties on the other side, the Liberal yeah. Democrats and Labour, who are broadly going to be committed for a second referendum. Yeah. Uh, I, that I election just, is very unpredictable, but if it goes one way, then you could have a second referendum. So a second I, referendum is certainly on the agenda in a way which it wasn't a year ago. Is the nation exhausted by this? Do they look at this as a tipping point where Prime Minister Johnson will come to the rescue, he'll pet Larry the cat, and life will go on? I mean... <laughs> Are we at a tipping point um, of a constitutional crisis? Um, I w there is certainly a very widespread mood uh, that we are that Brexit has been a complete mess. The government has made a complete mess of it, and everyone wishes, you know, or a large proportion of the population are very bored with it and wish it would somehow go away uh, and uh, that they could forget about it. The problem, and this is why it's such an intractable problem, is that none of the options on the table uh, will make Brexit go away. Uh, the idea, the attraction for some people of a no-deal Brexit is, well, okay, then we'll be out, it'll be sorted, we'll have this clean Brexit. But the fact is, uh, it won't, because uh, there will be all sorts of things. Inevitably, we will end up back at the negotiating table with the EU trying to work out what to do about all well, the unresolved issues, about trade, <clears throat> about transport, about yeah. the exit bill, about citizens, and so on. Equally, even if there is a second referendum, uh, that's not going to bring back the country back together either. Because right. There is a very large proportion of the population which will see that as a betrayal and overturning the first referendum, undemocratic, and so on. So, unfortunately... Well, I think there is a very large portion of the population who would just right. like one way or another 
Brexit to be over with. It's not going to happen. Yeah. There's no scenario yeah. under which we don't continue to be talking about Brexit well, for it'll the next keep few us, years. It'll keep us employed. We look forward to seeing you in the green at Westminster again. Uh, Jonathan Portis uh, at King's College. Thank you so much for Perspective Away. I, I, intractable. All, I love that. All, That's the best word. Intractable. Yeah. And of all the people I've run into there, he's the clearest speaking yep. about the permanence of this, yep. which I find fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, as he mentioned, there may be a, you know, another election here yeah. uh, that we needed to sort this out. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.